the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Pastor Alistair Big on the program tonight. More information on the web about the broadcast and ministry at truthforlife.org. That's truthforlife.org. The broadcast weekday mornings at 730 right here on KFAX. You know, we hear these days, Alistair, uh, churches that have huge crowds and folks that will get up in the platforms, uh, on the pulpit rather, and will share uh, platitudes and nice stories and things of this sort. It seems, though, that on an ever-increasing basis... Preaching about the blood of Christ, the atonement, preaching about the need to count the cost of what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is something that is that seems to be glaringly absent. Well, yes, I, you know, I think um, it's always dangerous to generalize, and I know you understand that too. Um, yeah, I think we've gone through a real, a, a real period of time in which, you know, that idea of the way to make sure that we don't offend anybody is to uh, dilute things to the point of uh, pretty well tastelessness. And, um, you know, when um, the old uh, Scottish theologian spoke to the Yale Divinity students, uh, uh, James Stewart, in in 1952, uh, he warned them, 52, which is 61 years ago, about what he referred to as a, a theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating kind of Christianity, which he said was absolutely useless. Mm. And, you know, I, I think we're seeing the evidences of that now. And one of the one of the encouraging things for me as somebody who's now moved into, you know, um, my 60s is to see how many young men, though, are coming through in uh, various places in the country and who have really fastened on to the idea that uh, if we're going to take seriously what it means that Jesus is Lord, then we have no right to tamper with or to dilute or to try and redefine the claims of Jesus, but we must just state them as they are. And, of course, to fail to do so really uh, sort of strips the gospel of its life-changing power, doesn't it? Well, of course it does. I mean, the, I mean, in, in first century Corinth, Paul knew that, uh, you know, if he gave the people what they wanted to, to receive, whether it was the Jew or the Greek, then they would receive him with open arms. Uh, but the one thing that, uh, that they were unprepared for is, um, you know, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. There certainly seems to be, as we look at society today, uh, Western culture, there still seems to be a desire and interest in spiritual things. I, I think that sense of, of man's deep, innate longing uh, to be connected with God is there. We just, on an ever-increasing basis, don't know how to define it, and we head out to many false sources to try and address it or satisfy it, be it through pagan religion or the occult or whatever the case might be. Um, and and yet, so we see still a strong hunger, a strong spiritual desire, but it seems as if fewer people are really turning to Christianity, perhaps because we're not sharing the message with the kind of clarity and relevance that is needed to pierce people's hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit and, and present a gospel that people can look at and say, wow, there's real power behind us. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's really helpful, Craig. I, you know, we have uh, an Australian friend who uh, visits here, you know, every few years. And I remember the last time he was here, he made a comment concerning you know, sort of American Christianity. And, of course, we want to be as guarded with Australians as we should be with Scotsmen. But uh, <laughs> he, he, you know, he said that uh, he, he, he sensed a tone in American Christianity, which was, which was a tone of admonition rather than a tone of mission. So that mm. we were going to the culture to admonish them for everything that was wrong, uh, you know, in their belief system and in their expressions of their understandings. And I think it is an important thing to realize that uh, Jesus never, ever, um, and he never deviated from the clarity of his message. And yet the way in which he approached Zacchaeus or the way in which he approached the woman at the well, you know, is, is a masterful illustration to us of the way in which... Uh, we ought to be prepared to to speak to people on the on the troubled seas of life. Have we missed the mark then to a great degree in the sense, Alistair, that I think of the the wave of evangelicalism uh, getting involved in the, the body politic in a significant fashion, first in the late 1970s and, and certainly in through the decade of the 1980s and into the 90s, not to suggest at all, before listeners flood the phone lines here and I get in trouble, that, that we don't have an obligation as believers to vote and be involved in this business of self-governance. I believe that we do. And yet, oftentimes, it seemed as if there was a time in which we exchanged our involvement in the body politic for the realization that if we're going to change the world, we have to change hearts. You really can't affect change of heart by making political change. Yes, things and work needs to be done. Certainly the evidence of the um, uh, what's been coming out of Washington, D.C. in the last couple of days proves that. Yet at the end of the day, the real power is the, is the changed heart. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we do want to make sure that, that each of us are seizing the privileges and responsibilities of living in a democracy like this and making our voice heard and standing up for, uh, you know, moral rectitude and for, for biblical values and so on. But, um, you know, I, I think it's probably too soon to make these determinations, and I'm also fearful of overstepping my bounds here. But if you think back to... Well, I've been here three decades, so I get here right around the time I think that the moral majority and uh, and that whole movement is you know is is coming to the fore and doing what it's done and you know it's gone all the way around. But you know, I think we have to say that actually it really hasn't achieved its objectives. Mm. It's been it's it's been unable to to do this. I mean, we we're we're talking now. Uh, the day after the Supreme Court, you know, passes down what is it certainly couldn't be any any anything other than um, uh, a testimony to to immorality and to the the the, um, the the very reverse of the things that were angled for and labored for. And I, I actually am quite excited about it, though, Craig. I I'm not uh, despondent. I'm not wringing my hands. I I think that. There are certain things that are bad for our country that may well prove to be good for the church. Mm. If we if we recognize that, uh, as we must, that God is sovereign over these things, that he is the one who sets people up and he is the one who brings them down. Um, he doesn't do that in a vacuum and therefore our voice must be heard. But we have to recognize, too, that, you know, our view of the world is, is a much 
larger, vaster conception of what is going on. We're actually affirming the fact that Jesus Christ is not only a resurrected uh, Savior, but he is an ascended king, that he rules over the cosmos, and that the providence of God is such that nothing happens except through him and by his will. That's basic biblical Christianity, which, of course, challenges a worldview that is deistic or pantheistic. Uh, which, of course, is, you know, uh, both both perspectives are prevalent in, in our contemporary society. So that really takes us back then to the centrality of his lordship. And maybe time, as you point out, for some introspection of the church. As much as it's easy to become dismayed by these events, morally, politically, even economically, that's been occurring in our country and in, in sort of the, the uh, micro and globally in the macro, to understand that for the church, focusing back on teaching and prayer and giving ourselves to evangelism and to worship and giving to the poor and and certainly discipleship, if we can get back to those key things, then I think God can indeed have us in the position where he can better use us to influence culture and society around us. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you think about, for example, an era like... uh you know, the 18th century awakening with Whitfield. Yes. You've, you, all, you always have strong, strong preaching. Uh, Dwight L. Moody, you know, apparently didn't have very many sermons, but nobody misunderstood him when he spoke. And he combined, as did Spurgeon in Victorian England, um, a real commitment to the good news, the proclamation of the good news, combined with expressions of good deeds, so that both of them were engaged in, in the social um, dimension of their immediate environment, whether it was in Chicago or in London. Both of them were involved with orphanages, and yet they did not for a moment confuse the necessity of people turning to Christ in repentance and faith with uh, the the good and necessary outflow of Christian uh, living that that uh, cares for the, for those who are least and last and left out. If there could be one singular message that is central to your heartbeat, the one message that you'd like to get across to every man and woman who has named Jesus as Lord and Savior, what would that be? Wow. Oh. Well, I think if I just apply it to myself, I mean, I think to fully understand that, you know, when Paul says one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to understand that that he's not talking there about that being an expression of devotion. He's talking about being an expression of his identity. That what he's saying there is that this that this Jesus, as the apostles did post Pentecost, this Jesus whom you crucified, uh, God has made him both Lord and King, and therefore I have no freedom to believe anything other than what He teaches me, and what He teaches me is left for me in the Scriptures, and I have no freedom to behave in any other way than that for which uh, to which I'm called, and that then you know impacts. Every area of our lives, uh, our vocation, uh, our sexuality, uh, our marriages, uh, our singleness, whatever it might be. And, you know, then then we have an opportunity to uh, to speak to people. And, and often, uh, you know, the, the attractiveness of it 
uh, ought to be found in the loveliness of Christ, mm. the compassion of Christ, the patience of Christ. And I think so often, if you if you take, for example, and sometimes the media has branded us in this way, and a few crazy people have have led to it. But but I think we do have to face the fact that we often come across as a rather disgruntled and angry bunch of people, uh, as opposed to. Uh, a people who say that they have been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Yeah, you're right. It's often interesting if you talk to non-believers um, and get their opinion about Christians. Uh, they can give you a long list, a big litany of what it is that we are against. Right. And then when you ask them, can you tell us what Christians are for? They're silence. Yeah. And, uh, and that speaks volumes, certainly. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, 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 you know, if you think about Jesus with the woman at the well, you know, what a what a conversation starts. May I have a drink of water, please? You know, he doesn't. He he eventually gets to the point. You know, when he asks her to call her husband, and and she admits that you know she's had a number of husbands and she has a live-in lover. But that's not what that's not what he starts with. I mean, he's not sitting at the well with a big sign condemning you know her. Uh, her multiple relationships. He he starts by uh, simply engaging her in conversation. Hey, we as the church can learn a lot from that example, that we might be better to engage the culture and society around us for the sake of the gospel by simply beginning with engaging others in conversation and, of course, ultimately understanding what it means to be a disciple, to count the cost. We sure appreciate your time, your faithfulness to the Lord, and the caliber and quality of your uh, teaching ministry. Thanks so much again for the time. There's Pastor Alistair Begg. Again, uh, his broadcast is weekday mornings at 7.30 here on KFAX. And, uh, wow, 30 years of ministry at Parkside Church in uh, Cleveland. What a blessing it is to have him as part of the ministry here at KFAX. And let me just say this. If Alistair's pulpit ministry has been a blessing to you, would you take a moment today and jot him a note? It's not about puffing people up, but, you know, sometimes it's good to know that you're making a difference, that what you're saying and what you're teaching and your heartbeat and your passion for God and for his word is impacting lives. And if you would take a moment today to drop him a note, I know that he would certainly be blessed and encouraged by that. You can get more information about the ministry at truthforlife.org. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to spend some time in this portion of the program talking about power. Now, at least you think we're going to dive into a bit of a thesis on how to reduce your energy bills and <laughs> save money. Uh, no, not quite that kind of power, but power nevertheless. A topic that while most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about in a direct fashion... We nevertheless are engaged in it. Some of us exercise it. Others have a thirst or a yearning for it. It's something that we think about at certain levels, and yet we have this very odd relationship with power. We know certainly that the old adage, what is it, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what of our relationship to this topic of power from a spiritual standpoint? My next guest tonight has taken some time to dive deeper into this very equation, and he details his findings and really kind of kind of pulling back, so to speak, the, the layers of the onion to help us better understand our relationship to power inside the pages of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. It is written by author, executive editor of Christianity Today, Andy Crouch. And Andy, thanks so much for being on the program with us. 
Thank you, Craig. I'm delighted to be here. Fascinating topic. It's something that, as I say, well, we probably don't get up every day and think specifically about this topic. It's one that we're we're tied into on a day by day basis, and a lot of us find ourselves even in this in this struggle for or against power of one sort or another, uh, literally daily, don't we? It's part of being a human being, I think. It's actually part of being a living, any living creature uh, has some kind of power because power in the most basic sense is just the ability to make a difference in the world, to make some kind of change in the world. And if you're alive, you're doing that one way or another. But as human beings, we have much more complex kinds of power than other creatures do, other parts of creation do. And that's ultimately because we're, we're made in the image of God in, in a way that other creatures aren't. And I think that's why every human being, um, you know, you mentioned a yearning for power. Every human being kind of wants room to, to make something of value and worth. But then also this has become very distorted uh, by our own sin and the ways that we've uh, distanced ourselves from God. Indeed, we see uh, laid out literally from the Garden of Eden uh, the capacity of power to either do good or do evil. And then it seems as if it's been a, a history-long, lifelong struggle for mankind in trying to deal with well, what exactly is our relationship to power. What do we do with it? Why do we yearn for it? How do we corrupt it? How do we drive it in the right direction so that it can, in fact, do more good than it does evil? You know, when you when you lay it out like that, you realize, in a way, the whole story of Scripture is a story about power. It's about the original power that human beings were meant to have. They're made in the image of God. They're the climax of creation in Genesis 1. And they're given dominion. You know, that's a power word over the whole creation. These very frail, vulnerable creatures, just like you and me, are, are told that they're to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and, you know, all this stuff that pre-technology logical humanity couldn't directly control, and yet they're given this vision that they're there to represent the Creator in the midst of creation. But then something goes very wrong, and I think you'd sum it up by saying they try to uh, declare uh, declare independence from God. They try to separate themselves from God and use their power for themselves. And the power that we were meant to have, which was meant to be the, for the flourishing of the whole world, ends up being kind of turned in on our own uh, benefit, our own self-protection. And then the question becomes, how is God going to intervene to set this story right, and that in many ways is, is the story of the rest of the Bible. And it really is amazing, as you point out. I mean, literally, in the opening chapter of Genesis, we see the first action of God, a display of his power, yeah. as he engages in his creative power to bring about planet Earth. Then we see, later on, once mankind is about the scene, uh, first an account of the power struggle between Lucifer and God himself, right. and then later on, man's power struggle as we engage in this battle in the Garden of Eden. And it seems as if this this issue of kind of a, a power struggle with God or against God has kind of been a component from day one, hasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And this was actually true even in the world where the, where the book of Genesis was first written down, because the other creation stories that were told by the, the gods of Babylon or the, you know, the religion of Babylon all said that the world began with a conflict. Uh, they were all conflict stories. The amazing thing about Genesis 1 is it does not have, it doesn't begin with conflict. The conflict comes in later, and the, the root conviction of Genesis 1 is that when God uses his creative power, it brings only abundance. It's not kind of a zero-sum game where if I win, you lose, or if you win, I lose. Instead, you get more and more flourishing. 
what happens though when the man and the woman are tempted <laughs> and when they get into that and when that sets in motion really history as we know it is power becomes about conflict and it becomes about competition it's no longer about mutual flourishing where we actually both could win it's about one of us is going to to dominate uh, the other or one force is going to dominate the other and we start to believe that that's the realist form of power that the, the most real power is the power that can make you do something you don't want to do rather than the power that can call into being a world or new kinds of creativity new kinds of culture uh, that actually benefits everyone so what's fascinating about this then is we really get pulled into this topic andy of power in relationship to whether it's being used for uh, malevolent purposes or on the other hand malevolent purposes Mm. that impacts every relationship that we have. I mean, certainly with God, I mean, sin is what better description of the power struggle uh, that exists between mankind and God uh, than to see sin and and how that power fight's going on. And not just, though, on the vertical plane, but even on the horizontal plane in our relationships. I mean, think of the young teenager who's rebelling against his parents, and all of a sudden there's this power struggle that we see that's being displayed there. Even the friction between husband and and wife and relationships at that level oftentimes are, are demonstrative of this fight over power. They really are about power, and, uh, and and I think that's because in many ways it's the most it's the most fundamental thing we're given to work with as human beings, either for good or for bad. Um, and so you do find it in every relationship, actually, every workplace, every church, every family, and and most of us, realistically, the place where most of us have the most power is in our family relationships, especially if we're parents. But even even uh, as those of us who are parents know, children have tremendous power in their relationship with their parents Mm -hmm. and and of course that's why so much of the bible story is the story of families that either get it somewhat right never entirely right uh and sometimes get it terribly wrong um and you know again we often think you know when we think of power i think we often think of you know politics or perhaps military power and those are very real but when i started to dive into this issue i realized actually all of us confront these issues every single day i confront in my own home not just when i'm out doing allegedly powerful things but even in choosing how i relate to my wife and my children my neighbors it has happens at every scale of human society. Well, even deeper than that, perhaps, Andy, is that the power struggle that goes on internally. I mean, look, for example, Paul talked about, you know, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know to do good, and yet I do it not. Daily I have to die unto the flesh. Don't we see demonstrated there, in that sense, an internal power struggle going on? Do we yield to God? Do we yield to the devil? Who's going to kind of get control here? I think that's an amazing observation. And what it always, I think, uh, for many people, the real question in life is not actually, does God exist? I think most people know God exists. And Paul says even those who don't believe that sort of suppress the truth. They still know the truth. But the real question is, is God good? <laughs> and and especially, if I serve God, well, does that mean I have to give up things I want? Does that mean I have to give up what's good? And the the root of of every abuse of power is the idea that that we can't both get something good. Either I and God, I can't. God can't get what's you know good for God and good for me. Or you and I, if we get locked in a power struggle, we start to believe either I win or you win. 
And when that enters into our relationship with God, we've basically believed the very thing the serpent says in Genesis uh, 3, which is God's actually jealous of his power, and he doesn't want you to have all of it, so you better eat that fruit so that you'll have what God doesn't want you to have. And that's the fundamental lie, that God wants you to have something that would actually be good for you, but that God doesn't want you to have. And that's just an amazing point that you make there, because there is an aspect of this power that we define in the flesh. And I mean, we just bring up the topic. We think of power. It's the energy to drive to do something, to accomplish something. And we often think that, well, the greatest display of power is when we're flexing our muscles to use power. Failing perhaps to recognize that it's somehow there's there's another aspect that can show how powerful we can be that in the flesh might seem to be weak, but in the spiritual realm is in fact very powerful. We'll talk a bit about that, too, as we continue our conversation today. Andy Crouch on the line with us today. He, executive editor of Christianity Today and the author of a new book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dissecting today in this edition of Lifeline all of the power struggles that we see at so many levels within our relationships, within our history, uh, really going back to the beginning of time tonight with Andy Crouch. Um, he, of course, does not go quite back to the beginning of time, but he's been around for a while, enough to be able to be executive editor of Christianity Today, a prolific writer. One of his other best-selling books includes Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling. We're talking today, though, about his latest book, newly published by University Press called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Interesting, Andy, when we talk about the ways in which sometimes power gets distorted, we always have that sense that power is about getting my way. And if I just get my way, I'm somebody that's very powerful. And yet sometimes surrendering parts of ourselves, while perceived perhaps in the flesh to be weakness, actually can be quite powerful, can't it? Yes, and, uh, you know, it's amazing how often, you, how much time you spend in the first chapter of Genesis when you start thinking about this, because, of course, the first chapter of Genesis begins with God, the Creator, who we know as Christians is three persons, three in one, and there's that interesting moment in Genesis 1 where God actually says, let us make humankind. And that uh, Creator is already complete. He has his way, if you want to put it that way, already, without making the world. And yet this God desires to bring into being a world that's going to have all of these other creatures, starting with very simple creatures uh, in the first days of creation, as, it's, as the story is told, but then culminating in these creatures who are made in his image. He actually wants partners. And so when we think about the highest form of power, I think we do often think, boy, if I really had power, I would just say, you know, do it. And people would do it. <laughs> they would basically be little uh, robots obeying my commands. Um, and this is what we think it would be like to be God, to be able to just move things around and move uh, persons around without regard to what they want. But it seems like the deeper form of power is actually to call into being other other 
persons who can actually collaborate with you because that's what God essentially invites these creatures made in his image to do, to be his representatives in the midst of creation. So, you know, we really have to get away from this idea that the, the realist form of power is control or command and realize that actually the realist form of power is creation and collaboration. That's when you have the most powers, when other people actually take up their own creative abilities. And, and that understanding, that perspective is, is critically important, isn't it? Because if we're going to redeem power, then there has to be something worthy of being redemptive there. And so often, as I say, I think, Andy, a lot of us mistake power for meaning that means you get to do whatever you want to do in order to the other people around to do your bidding, which, as we're learning, is absolutely not the case at all. So then yeah. at the end of the day, it's understanding that perspective that allows us to see the good of power and how this can be then redeemed for God's purposes. That was one of the big breakthroughs for me, was when I realized we often talk about power as if it's the same thing as dominance or domination. And actually, that domination is a, is a very weak form of power. If all I have over you is the ability to make you do things that you don't want to do, I actually have very little real power. And it's interesting you mentioned that. I remember thinking back to a lot of the media reports, for example, over Ariel Castro. This is that guy there in Cleveland that kidnapped Amanda oh, Berry and, and wow. two other girls. Uh, and you would read the story on the surface and see the way in which he had held these girls in, in the basement of this house with uh, wire ties around their wrists and chains and everything else. And you think, well, there's demonstrative of this guy being so powerful, wielding all this power over these girls. And yet, the deeper you get into the psyche in the story, you begin to realize, no, this guy's not powerful at all. In fact, he's pretty powerless. Yes, and the, and you know, Paul uh, will use the language of impri imprisoned or slave. You know, a slave, especially in the ancient world, was someone who had absolutely no power of their own, completely dependent on their master. And Paul says, if we really get, gave into that idea of domination, if we got what we think we want, which Ariel Castro did kind of get for a time, what he thought he wanted, the ability to dominate, we actually become slaves. Uh, of sin. We, we don't end up being masters. And that's why the serpent's promise in the garden is so um, appealing and so deceptive, because actually once the man and woman get what they want, what we want, to be like God without having to be in relationship with God, they actually find that they don't have what they wanted at all. Um, and that's what where domination leads. It, it actually, strangely enough, leads to the, the one who would be master ends up being becoming completely so mastered by it. Really sick. Satan is in the process of distorting power then uh, from the very beginning and all the time. Yeah. I mean, think, for example, about Jesus there during the 40 days in the wilderness uh -huh. and the number of times that he was tempted. And, and I always read those passages and thought to myself, Satan, you're an idiot. I mean, to begin with, you're going to say that you're going to offer very God himself here. If you just bow down and worship me, I give you all of the kingdoms of the earth and so on and so forth. And I always thought to myself, how can you give God what he already has? <laughs> So all his to begin with, he created it all, so how can you give him what he already has? Yes, but, you know, in a way, Jesus is the only human being who has heard those temptations and not at some level given in. Mm -hmm. Now, not all of us uh, have heard the promise of every single kingdom, but all of us have that kind of twinge of an idea that we're made for more than we have. And and that's true. Uh, we, you know, we're made, in the image of God, we're made for much more than we currently experience. But Satan insinuates this idea that there's a shortcut to it, that it involves domination, that it involves kind of cheating God of what God 
God, only God can give. And Jesus is the only human being who's ever realized that's actually not, uh, that bargain will not actually work out. It's actually a lie. And if, if he went through with it, he would find that Satan had mastered him. And instead, he came out of that temptation able to, to say no. Bring us back to this full circle of the issue of um, bringing power back into the balance. First, to understand mm. that it, it, it needs to first and foremost be used for the capacity to do good. And we see, when we really mention this even from the very get-go, as we see this in Scripture, the very first acts of God are cre- is the demonstration of creative power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think one question to ask is, you know, with whatever power I have today, you know, you mentioned I have a I have a title, I'm executive editor of a magazine called Christianity Today. Well, that's a position of power. So the question is, I think there's a couple questions. One is, who am I using that power for? And if the answer is I'm using it mostly for my own benefit to, uh, you know, increase my own notoriety or fame or my own wealth or, you know, any number of things, then it's pr- I'm probably going to end up using other people for my ends. But it might be possible to use even, you know, positions like that actually for others flourishing. And I think in the case of people who, say, own a business, so that it could be a small business or have a position like I do or you are in charge of some people, you, you actually are given power not for your own flourishing but for their flourishing. So one of the most important questions we can ask is, who is flourishing because I have power? <laughs> and if the answer is me and my that isn't very much like the true God. But if the answer is the people who actually are under my care are flourishing, they're becoming more of what they're meant to be. They're expressing their own power. They're getting to do things they, they wouldn't have gotten to do otherwise. Then I think we're on the path to a much better use of power. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Andy Crouch is with us. He's the author of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Now, when we come back after a quick timeout, we're going to go deeper into this topic, uh, how we can go about utilizing the creative and benevolent power that God has given to all of us um, in order to use it for his glory, to go deeper in our relationships, not with just with God on the uh, uh, the vertical plane, but with others on the horizontal plane as well, as Andy just referred to. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as we're discovering in our conversation tonight with Andy Crouch, and certainly displayed throughout so much of Scripture, uh, the power can be used in very many good ways. We think of creative power. We think of the power that has been given to us unto salvation through Christ's substitutionary work on the cross. Uh, and yet, as we see the good side, the good aspects of power, we also recognize there's a power struggle. There's a balance between power being good used for good or power being good uh, used for evil. How do we go about harnessing harnessing power for the use for good, for the glory of the kingdom, and learn how to become, I guess ultimately, Andy Crouch, trustees of power. We're, we're, mm. we're kind of entrusted to this. It's just what we do with it, huh? <laughs> yes, that's right. And, you know, the title of my book is Playing God. And we usually say that like it's a bad thing. Uh, and it is a really bad thing if you're not playing the true God. But the Really, the question is not whether you're playing God or not. It's which God are you playing? You're going to play some image. You're going to bear some image with your life. Your life will either reflect the image of a false God, the God of domination, the God who has to get his own way, or it will reflect the, the image of the true God, the God who, when things went so terribly wrong, was even willing to give up his own son uh, to bear pain rather than inflict pain. 
Um, so it really comes down to what you believe ultimate reality is about. And if you believe in, that the Christian gospel is true, it's going to change, I think, how you use the power you have and also who you use it for. You won't use it primarily for your own benefit, and you will use it, especially, it seems to me, for those who are the, the most vulnerable, the least and the last and, and the lost that Jesus talked about so many times. Jesus kind of reorients our use of our power towards people who can never pay us back necessarily, who can't benefit us, but who our exercise of power can actually help them flourish. This is kind of a delicate dance, isn't it? Because we see, for example, um, examples of uh, servant leaders. These are individuals who, who have power, maybe within an organization that they can hire and they can fire, things of this sort. Uh, and yet they wish to, instead of putting that power to use to demonstrate how much power they have, rather mm. sharing it with others to, to empower them. It's interesting how uh, perhaps the, the, there's a, a certain power of shared power, isn't there? Absolutely. And I think that's a, a wonderful model. And uh, in a way, you know, I think power really is, it's supposed to be used to serve. Um, that is to say, it's supposed to be used to help others flourish who would not have flourished if you didn't use your power. So if you have one of those positions, your responsibility is to make sure that other people flourish. And that's, in a way, the deepest, I think, sense of what serving is. Well, we, and we certainly see that, you know, throughout Scripture. I mean, for example, God is a righteous and holy God who created us, could have easily have said, well, huh. my creation has offended me, and therefore I'm going to use my power to punish and abolish my creation. Instead, he used his power to bring about victory over death and sin through the work that his son did on the cross. It's amazing. And you know, as amazing as creation is, in some ways, the new creation Paul talks about, which is the result of the, the giving of God and God's son on the cross, is even more amazing. The new creation is just extraordinary that God reaches into this broken world and doesn't act simply to wipe things out or to even to command and control everything, but starts recreating right in the midst of it, and ultimately is going to make everything new, it says in Revelation. That's real power. <laughs> the ability to make all things new, to wipe tears from people's eyes, from everyone's eyes. Um, and we, of course, we only get a little taste of that uh, in our own lives. We're only given a tiny measure of that, and any more than we have would overwhelm us. But I do think we have access to that kind of recreating power, as well as the sort of a original creativity that was human beings' birthright as image bearers. How do we start this process in terms of, I think, probably just evaluating where we're at in this power struggle uh, that we have yeah. with God? And, uh, th of course, that, that then spills over into every other relationship. How do we go about ana analyzing, Andy, the way we're using our power, either to good or to uh, evil, and then learn how to rebalance it so that it becomes a, a redemption of power? I think that's a fantastic question, and you know, I would start with our uh, with our neighbor who we have seen, as James says. James says, you know, how can you love God who you haven't seen when you can't love your neighbor who you have seen? And we can sometimes be very clever about rationalizing our relationship with God, but our neighbor sees how we treat them. And I'm thinking maybe not so much our next-door neighbor, though it could be that, but the people who are closest to us. I think the place to start is to ask very, to create an environment where you can honestly ask and honestly hear, how am I using whatever power I have? Um, and so husbands should ask this of their wives, uh, and wives should ask this of their husbands. It can start at home. It can happen in the workplace to say, you know, I have 
power in this position, perhaps, and asking the people who are affected by that, how am I doing? And making sure that they can answer honestly. Now, that takes time. That takes building trust. But I think other people will... The other thing that happens, most of us don't think we have very much power. But when you ask other people, what are some of my gifts? What are areas where when I do this, it really creates things? They will they'll give you insight into the power you actually have, even if you don't have a title that seems like it has a lot of power or a position that seems like it has a lot of power. Now, let's talk then about relationship to bringing that power balance back in our in our relationship with God. Mm. So then I so once we've started to uh hear from our neighbors <laughs> how we're doing, I I think there's a huge place for, you know, what often the Christian tradition is called the spiritual disciplines. Because the spiritual disciplines actually put us in a very powerless place. When I fast or when I am silent or when I pray alone, there's no one to impress. <laughs> it's not something I'm very good at. I think the interesting thing about the spiritual disciplines, like fasting, is any, any human being, uh, any healthy adult human being can do that. It's not hard to do, and yet it's impossible to do it well. Then when you seriously take up a discipline of fasting, you discover how how uh, sort of uh, accustomed you are to filling every little need with food and you discover how much you need God and so I think the spiritual disciplines are, are ways that sort of train us to realize how dependent we've become on our own sense of ourselves and our own sense of power and they, they sort of lay us open before God and it's amazing what you discover about yourself in prayer as you practice these disciplines and at the end of the day it's not that God wants to strip us of power it's how we channel it, how we direct that, how we use that power. He wants us to have true power, and more, I think, than we ever really imagined. Uh, you know, Paul, when he's trying to deal with the church in Corinth, and they're you know, taking each other to court, <laughs> he says, look, don't you know we're going to judge angels? I mean, there's an immense amount of power that is waiting to be conferred on these redeemed image bearers that God wants to bring back into his creation, the way it was originally meant to be. So, God, you know, this is the, the, the great lie, is that God wants to take power away from us and keep us from having having things we want, <laughs> but in fact, God has more for us than we could ever imagine, but it's a matter of becoming the kind of uh, image bearers who can bear the weight of that and who can not be uh, kind of corrupted by it. To whom much is given, much is expected. Yeah, yeah. And that really kind of brings us full circle on this topic tonight. I sure appreciate you diving into this, Andy, because it's one that I think, you know, again, we, we look at all mankind and we see a power struggle going on. <clears throat> We look at history, we see a power struggle going on. We look at scripture, we see a power struggle going on. We look at sin in our lives with God, and we see a power struggle going on. It's not that power is a bad thing. I mean, thank goodness for power. We wouldn't be on the radio right now if it wasn't for power. And yet, if I walked up to one of the towers and decided to wrap my arms around it, I could also find out that the same power that's allowing our voices to get out all over the San Francisco Bay Area uh, could strike me dead in the wrong fashion in a quick second. So it really comes down to our relationship with power and what we do with it. Exactly. And the good news is God is at work in all this. And uh, that very thing that can electrocute, <laughs> and in a way did electrocute his son, right? His son suffered the worst that human power can do. That God can even overcome that and has something amazing on the other side of it that really brings uh, blessing to, to the world. And that's what I think the hope that we can have as we realize that power is everywhere, uh, but, but God's power to redeem and recreate and restore is everywhere as well. You, you might initially hear the topic 
Pacific and say, well, this is a good book. I'm going to get a copy from my boss. <laughs> um, or I have a husband or a wife or whomever that seems to be on a power trip. But really, all of us struggle at one level or another with power. Trying to redefine what our relationship with power is, and then to learn that this is not something that um, should be shunned per se, that in fact it's a gift from God. How do we, though, redeem it for His purposes? You'll find some great insights. <coughs> Pardon me, inside the pages of Andy Crouch's new book called Simply Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. The new book, again, published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as um, all the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc. Andy Crouch, thanks so much for being with us. Great book, great conversation. There's Andy Crouch, executive editor of Christianity Today, author of the new book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.